Good morning and welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are with us here this morning. Like Riley said, we start a new series, but I'm also super thrilled about what God is doing in and through our next-gen ministries. So from our, our kids and their environments to uh, youth and 710, which is our young adult communities, we're just seeing God just really work in pretty incredible ways. Brian Berger is our pastor over next-gen ministry, so he provides oversight to all three of those different ministries and just the, the way that he's leading and the things that God's doing in and through him and his leadership and in those different communities has been remarkable. If you were with us last week, in fact, at this service, at the 1030 service last week, uh, we just had all these youth, all these high school students who were getting baptized. uh, And then there was like this kind of mob that broke out, uh, this like praise mob. And they kind of came over here and had a full on party. They didn't even care what else was happening in the room. They were just like so stoked for their friends uh, that they were seeing uh, make this decision uh, about knowing the Lord and walking with him and giving their life. And so it was amazing to see uh, you all too as a church cheering them on as they cheered on their friends. So I just got this really beautiful multi-generational picture of what the church is supposed to be uh, and what God uh, in his kindness is doing here. So we've long said for a long time, we want to have an impact and be an influence beyond this campus, beyond this generation. And so as a church, Church, over decades, we've really tried to put our resources and our energy towards that. So whether it's uh, finances or human capital or just opportunity, really trying to sow into that as much as we can. And summer camp has historically and is been such a major, major part of that uh, endeavor and a part of that vision of seeing the next generation just really rise up in our church uh, and seeing so many students come to know Jesus. And it's just been amazing how parents and grandparents have also participated in and invested in that. Some have gone and spent time. Others have given loads of money towards it. So we're just so thrilled. So uh, it's all this to say another tremendous opportunity for our church to step into that. And what's really cool is this year or so uh, is that all 10 congregations from across redemption are going to be participating in this. So this is true truly a huge family moment for us and uh, just really excited about that. There is great opportunity for you to, uh, if you have a student who's in junior high or high school, to send them on your on your uh, chair. There's one of these like business cards that has a QR code on it. You can register right there. If you do not have a student that fits in that age stage, but you'd still like to participate, there's great need for scholarships uh, for these families. So we've tried really hard over the years to keep the cost of camp down to a a minimal amount. And the church has heavily subsidized this just because it's so, so important to us. The cost of camp has gone up this year. Just things are just more expensive. It's just the reality. And in order to steward well what we have, the cost has had to increase. So that just makes it more difficult for families. So if you'd like to bless uh, some of these families, if you'd like to bless some of these youth, uh, there's a great opportunity for you to give scholarship funds. You can give that through the app, or you can go to the info desk, which is right in the in the lobby, or you can go over to the main office as well, too. So summer camp has a huge part just in my own story, in my own life. Uh, when I was a kid, my family sent me to Christian camps, and it was there that I first really learned who Jesus was. And then later on in life, I actually worked for a camp. Uh, it's where I met Jesus and, and uh, where he saved 
saved me. It's also where I met my wife. So summer camp's like a magical thing. So I, some of you are like, can I go to summer camp? I, I, it sounds great. Uh, so it really has a huge part, and I love seeing just what God does every year. So at the very uh, least, we want you just to make sure that you're praying for the leaders, pray for Brian and his team, uh, and pray for summer camp and just what God is going to do. All right, so we are starting our series in the book of Colossians. If you're not familiar where Colossians is in the Bible, it's in the New Testament, which means it's in the kind of the second half of the scriptures. So it goes um, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you make it all the way to 1 Thessalonians, you've gone too far, so just back up a little bit. We're going to be right there in, in Colossians. Let me pray this morning uh, as we just dive into this book and ask God to, uh, to speak to us. Father in heaven, we love you. God, thank you for this moment that you've given us. Thank you for your word that you've given us. And thank you most of all, Jesus, for your presence and your power in our lives. And God, we are praying that we, by your spirit, would just have a heightened awareness of your presence and your power. And God, that you would stir up in us a desire for more of your presence and more of your power in our lives, God. So would you quiet uh, the noise that surrounds us? Uh, God, your word tells us that you quiet us in your love. And so God, would we be quieted by your love this morning? Holy Spirit, would you come? God, would you do... Um, the, the work that only you can do, the supernatural work of you illuminating your word, God, so it lights up our hearts and our minds, and it makes us not just hearers this morning, but God, it actually transforms and changes us so that we do what you call us to do, God, because we find joy in that, and God, because it's the best way for us to, to live, and we want we want to know what you want for us. So God, help us in that. I pray the same thing for me. Holy Spirit, I pray for a, a filling and a covering. God, I pray that you might guide and direct uh, me, even interrupt me, God, where it's necessary. Um, Jesus, so that we just see you more clearly and love you more fully. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we just finished as a church uh, working through the book of John. And in the book of John, this gospel account, the life of Jesus, we saw the person of Jesus, we saw the work of Jesus, what he did, and we see the ways of Jesus, how he goes about. And now as we move into the book of Colossians, this letter that the apostle Paul wrote, he is going to take the person, the ways, and the work and apply them to really the everyday stuff of life for us. So Paul's going to show us like, how do we walk out and work out the person of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, and the work of Jesus. He's not saying you need Jesus plus these additional things. In fact, that's a heresy that Paul is going to teach against in this letter. One of the major themes of Colossians is that faith in Jesus alone, trust in Jesus alone, is sufficient to change our identity, which leads to a new way of living. Let me, let me say, that, say that again. Faith in Jesus alone is sufficient 
to change our identity, which leads to a new way of living. So this little letter uh, is written to uh, believers in a city called Colossae. It's not a particularly large city. Uh, It's actually located in what is modern-day Turkey right now. Um, Through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the gospel had made its way there. Paul had never been to Colossae. He was uh, kind of posted up in this place called Ephesus. And Colossae is about a two- or three-day journey from where he was was in Ephesus. And when Paul was in Ephesus in in, um, Acts, it tells us that he was preaching every day there. Uh, And as he was preaching there, the gospel was radiating and going out to different parts of Asia. And while Paul was preaching there, there was a young man named Epaphras. And Epaphras, his hometown was Colossae. He heard the gospel. God saved him, transformed him. And then he went back to Colossae and began to share the gospel in the good news there. Colossae is a pretty unique town. It's a real uh, agrarian city. It was located kind of on a riverside. It's a multi-ethnic community. So there were Phrygians there and Greeks. There was a large Jewish contingency that had worked there. So it was a pretty mixed communi- community ethnically uh, that carried with it a whole mix of thoughts and philosophies. Um, and in the midst of that, people came to put their faith in Jesus through Epaphras. Paul would actually say of Epaphras, he's a fellow prisoner, which most common think that at one point Epaphras was actually in prison with Paul. And Epaphras is coming back and he's telling Paul about this community. And he's like, they are on fire for Jesus. There's amazing things happening there. But there is this kind of heresy that's creeping in, in the matrix of other thoughts and philosophies and all these other things. There's, there's this other kind of heresy or false teaching that's creeping in that says, it's good that you know Jesus, but if you really want to know the fullness of God, you you need to be filled with the philosophies of other gods and other ways of thinking. Paul's a pretty brilliant writer, and so he's going to take some of these words that the false teachers were bringing in, and he's actually going to, in many ways, kind of redeem those words or use them to teach the Colossian church. So you're going to see, like the word philosophies was something that they were bringing in. Paul's going to take that and use that. Filling, fullness, those kind of words. There's key words that we're going to see in this book that Paul is taking as these false teachers kind of hijack them. And what Paul's teaching this church is that Jesus is sufficient and supreme for all things. And so it's not like you have Jesus and then you move on from him. You don't outgrow Jesus, you grow in him. You don't move on from Jesus, you grow with him. And I want to just encourage you, uh, there's a couple ways that we're going to try to take some time as we slowly move through this book and to, and to really have it take root and to grow deeper. I, I, a lot of times when we get into studying the Bible, we can just try to read through things. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but sometimes I'll just read through a whole section and be like, what did I just read? I don't know. I just kind of missed it there. So there's a couple ways that we want to help you uh, as we're all working through this book book together. One of the things, um, our friends in Redemption, they've put together a study guide. So these are available if you want um, if you want a hard copy of it. These are available over at the Commons the Bookstore. You can also buy them on the Redemption shop online. Uh, they're only $5, but this is a great way for you to just work through the book and kind of bring some things uh, to light. This is also available digitally as well, too. So if you, if you don't want to pay for it, uh, you can just find it on the app or find it online. One of the things that I'm doing, uh, and you can hold me accountable 
vulnerable to this, uh, that, I, that I've started to do this week is I'm actually trying to uh, write by hand or copy by hand the book of Colossians. So just as I'm reading it, as I'm studying it, as I'm reading commentaries and listening to other things about it, I've started just to by hand copy the book of Colossians. And it's been pretty fascinating because it, it forces me to go slow because my hand keeps cramping up. But it also is bringing, there's certain words that just seem to be kind of jumping off the page because I'm going slow and taking time like that. All right, so let's start in verse one. Now, one of the great things uh, about Paul here is he's really, he's really stoked about this church. He's very excited, and he's hearing really good things about them. So Paul gets to start his letter in a pretty fun way. He gets to start it by just saying, I'm hearing so many great things about you guys. I just want to start by saying thank you, and I'm thanking God for the great things that I'm hearing. We do something on our, on our staff, um, often a little exercise called See Something, Say Something. And I, I got the idea from, like, if you've been to the airport, and it's like, hey, you see something suspicious or mysterious, you know, like, like, and yes, we do have some suspicious things kind of going on, but like, uh, it, it's, and I've kind of taken it and I'm like, well, what if I see something really great? Let's say something. And so we as a staff kind of have a regular exercise of like, hey, I saw you doing something great this week. I just want to shout you out to everybody and say thank you and thank God for what you're doing. So Paul is kind of in this see something, say something mindset where he's like, I'm seeing some really, or hearing some really great things about you. Colossians 1, verse one, this is what he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. So it's a pretty standard greeting that Paul starts with here. If you look at his other letters, it's, it's pretty similar to what he's saying. Um, the Apostle Paul, by the way, if you're not familiar with who he even is, uh, the Apostle Paul was a man named Saul. And Saul was part of the religious Jewish elite, uh, and he was a persecutor of those who were following the way or those who were uh, Christians. And Paul, or Saul, excuse me, has a, this incredible interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read about that uh, in the book of Acts, and, and, and God completely reorients and changes forever the trajectory of Saul's life, changes his name to Paul, and Paul goes on to be uh, uh, one of the great just heroes of the Christian faith. And Paul here identifies himself as an apostle. Uh, it's, a, it's a God-given assignment to the apostle Paul. That word carries with it the idea of a ship that's carrying something very important across the ocean, or it would carry with it uh, the idea of an emissary with an important message from the king. And so when Paul says, I'm an apostle, I'm an emissary from King Jesus, Christ Jesus. So Christ is not his last name, even though some of you grew up kind of hearing it that way. It's not his last name. Uh, it's a word that means Christos or anointed one. He's the hero. He's the king. And Paul's calling under God is an apostle of King Jesus, and Paul is the emissary to the ethnos or the nations, the Gentiles, basically anybody who's not Jewish. His job is to take the message of the Jewish Messiah Jesus to the world. 
And so Paul shows us that he has this unbending theology, but ever-changing methodology, meaning Paul's willing to have his entire life, even his name changed, rearranged for the sake of the gospel. He says our brother Timothy there in that section. Uh, and he calls out Timothy, and, and this just illustrates what Paul is, gonna, is saying that the gospel is doing, what Jesus is doing. So Timothy uh, was half Jewish and half Gentile, and he actually had a really tough time in either one of those communities. So like the Jews didn't really like Timothy because he was half Gentile. Gentiles didn't really like him because he's half Jewish. So he's kind of stuck in between. But Paul says, no, that's, that's our brother because God is building a family. He's saying Jesus knits us together across ethnic barriers, across racial divides. God is knitting us together. We are a family and we are holy because of Jesus. Very important. Paul is saying we were at Enmity, we were apart from God. Jesus has made us holy or put us together with God. We were apart from each other. Jesus has brought us together. So he's made us holy. He's put us back together with God. He's made us family. He's put us back together with each other. And he's saying grace and peace to all of you. Verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Very important part of Paul's ministry, really important part of Paul's life. So Paul, as a good Jewish man, would have learned to pray uh, for three hours a day, at least three hours a day. So he would have a morning prayer, a noon prayer, and an evening prayer. And he's saying, I pray for you always. So these three hours of prayer, which we look at that, we're like, that seems like a long time. Uh, and it is, but if you would consider that the average American spends three three and a half hours a day looking at their phone. Not making phone calls, not even like doing work, just three hours a day looking at their phone. Just by way of God's kind of uh, humor, uh, actually at nine o'clock I got an update or a thing, a notification on my watch that said, your average daily screen time this week was four and a half hours a day. I was like, okay, I get it, God, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, I'm trying. Um, three and a half hours a day. And when you consider what that is actually producing in us, more anxiety, more anger, more coveting, more greed, more selfishness, more just instability, and Paul says, I'm praying, always giving thanks. So it's just, this is not the message. Uh, and I can tell it's making everybody really uncomfortable. So we'll move on here in a second. But if you would just consider, what if I changed my inputs? How might that change the outputs of my life? If I change the inputs from three and a half hours plus of screen time to maybe three and a half hours of prayer time, or study time, or word time, how might that change outputs? Okay, man, that's uncomfortable. Let's move on. 
Verse 4, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for God's people. Now, one of the reasons that I really like having a physical copy of the Bible, one of the reasons that I would really encourage you to bring a physical copy of the Bible is like you can actually write in it uh, and you can highlight certain things so that when you do go back and read it, there will be certain things that you highlight and that actually jump out to you. So one of the things that I have highlighted in my Bible is when he's saying, okay, we have heard of your faith. That's a word you could draw a little box around or underline, faith and of the love. That's another little word that connects to the faith and the love. So what Paul is saying here in verse four, he's like, I've heard that you trust Jesus, that your trust or your faith is in the person of Jesus, not in a philosophy, not in a political ideology or system, not in another stream of secular humanism, but in the person of Jesus. And what Paul is really excited about, he's saying that trust or that faith in the person of Jesus, it's producing love for all the saints, Paul would write another letter to uh, the Galatian church, and he says, nothing matters except for faith working itself out in love. So this, for Paul, is so central to his message to the church. It's your faith in Jesus alone that works itself out in love for others. That's how it shows up. How do you know that you have real faith in Jesus Faith becomes love, that as I trust in Jesus, as my faith grows deeper into him, I care about the other people that trust him too. My trust in Jesus becomes love for others. Faith becomes love. It's a major part of what Paul wants the church to know. Look at verse 5. So he, he says this, the, the faith and the love, there's those words again, that springs forth from the hope, and that's another word I'd put a little box around, hope stored up for you in heaven and about what you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Faith and love is because of the hope that you have from the truth of the good news. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to give you relationship with God that is secure forever. The, the false teaching that's moving into this little church in Colossae was like, listen, you're not okay unless you add to your faith these other ways of thinking. Like God's not going to be happy with you unless you add in these other ways of thinking. And what it was doing is really, it was rattling this young church. It was creating an insecurity in this young church. Because if you think a relationship is not secure, you can't be a loving person. You don't don't even have to be a Christian or a Bible person just to understand this. Because some of you, you've experienced this in life. When you have a relationship with a person who's insecure, that person becomes self-absorbed. When you are self-absorbed because you're constantly wondering, am I okay, and you start to turn inward, you don't have the capacity to love others the way that, certainly not the way that the scripture is calling. Insecurity makes us self-absorbed. If I'm always worried about me, if I'm always focused about me, if I'm always turning inward, I have no room to love you. But if I'm secure, I am free to be generous. I'm free to be radical in my love. And what Paul is saying here, your hope is fixed. I mean, even if you reverse engineer, it's like your hope is in heaven, it's secure. Your approval to God is fixed in heaven because of Jesus. And when you are secure like that, you can love. 
because I'm free to trust God, which means I'm free to care about you and free to love you. With my kids, one of the things that I try to reinforce with them all the time is I try, there's three things I try to tell all my kids all the time. I love you, I'm for you, I'm proud of you. I try to say that all, all, all the time to them. When I'm putting them in bed at night, even just when we're kind of random things we're walking, when uh, we're driving home from the soccer game and they didn't do what I thought they should have done on the soccer field, I have to just say, okay, I know I've got some tremendous coaching advice right now. It's going to change their world. But what they need to hear the most is I love you, I'm for you, I'm proud of you. And I reinforce that message that God says the exact same thing about you. He loves you. He's relentless towards you. He's for you. The scripture says that. Because, and here's why I want that to be consistent messaging, because I don't want them to source that anywhere else, in any other person or any other thing, because we're all hardwired as humans. God has created us this way to desire that. We all want those things. We want to know that we're loved. We want to know that we're safe. We want to know that we're secure. We want to know that, we're, that there's someone who's for us and that someone who's proud of us. We all want that stuff. And, if, and, and the world props up all these other ways that say, well, you can get that. You just have to do this or you have to have this or you have to achieve this or you have to own this. And we chase all those shadows and we chase all those lies and we end up feeling worse than when we even started to pursue those things. So what, the, what Paul is trying to do, he's like a good dad here to the Colossian church. He's like, I want you to know you're loved. I want you to know it's secure. It's not based on another way of philosophy or thinking that you have to add. Your relationship starts secure. In verse six, he says this. He says uh, that the, this gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and you truly understood God's grace. Paul's basically saying that message came to you in a very personal way, but what you need to understand is Colossae, it's so much bigger than you. It's, it's blowing up all over the world. The message, yes, is personal, but it's going out and God is doing a work everywhere and it's breaking down ethnic barriers. It's working across borders. It's working across tribal separations. God's bringing people together in him and with one another. Verse seven, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful ministry of Christ. Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Again, listen what Paul's driving into this church. He's saying, your faith in Jesus has changed your identity. That is secure, and it's produced a change in your activity. And Paul's saying, I am so thankful to hear about your love in the Spirit. Paul gives props where props are due. You have a great love for each other. And says Paul, Paul says, the reason I'm so excited is because I know it's not just you guys working real hard, like you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You're like, come on, guys, let's just be the most loving people out there. He's like, no, you love the way you do because the Spirit is working in you. And Paul says, I love that. Okay, so we get to verse 9. I gotta move quick here, because he, he's gonna shift a little bit. He's gonna shift a little bit in this prayer because he's gone from just saying, this is what I love. I'm hearing about your faith. I'm hearing about your love. I'm, fearing, I'm hearing about the hope that you have. I love it. It's a love that's in the spirit. I think it's all great. And now Paul shifts his prayer. He's like, I want God to do something for you. I want God to give you something. I want him to equip you in a certain way because Paul is saying, you are God's kids, 
You are God's kids. That's not in question. And now you have to look like God's kids. My uh, Last week um, at the nine o'clock service for Easter, I got to baptize my middle daughter. Her name's Vera. And when her face came up on the screen, I had all these people who said, oh, that is your daughter. She looks like just like you. And I was like, of course, she's gorgeous. That's, of course, she looks just like me. But kids should look like their dad. Kids should look like their parents. Kids, the family has a certain way that it looks. A family has a certain way that it shows up in the world. You should be able to look at my kids and be like, those are our Tino kids. They, they look like they're in that family. And now what Paul is kind of shifting to in this prayer is he's saying, you, as God's kids, you should look a certain way in the world. Verse nine, he says this for, this, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. Okay, so Paul is saying here, because you are God's kids, I want, you, I want God to equip you so that you can look like God's kids when you go into the world. And the first thing is that I, I want you to be filled, look at verse nine, I want you to be um, filled with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding. All right, now again, what was happening is this, these false teachers were coming in and they were saying, you need to be filled with the gnosis. That's the Greek word for knowledge. You need to be filled with this knowledge. And what they were saying is, and this knowledge is a secret knowledge that only we possess. And so when Paul is writing here is he's saying, I want you to be filled with the epinosis. That's an on top of knowledge and above and beyond like their gnosis. Paul is saying, look, I see their gnosis. I raise it with an epinosis. He's like, I want you to be known with the true knowledge, which is the knowledge of God's will. There is no secret knowledge that you need outside of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying to this church. And, and he's saying, you don't have to go anywhere else because the fullness of all knowledge and fullness of all wisdom is in the presence or in the person of Jesus. He says, I want you to have the knowledge of the will of God in the person of Jesus, but I also want you to have understanding because you can be in a place where you have knowledge and not understanding. For instance, me, my entire college career, I was around a lot of knowledge. We had great professors who knew a lot of things. I had no understanding because I was an idiot and I just sat there and I was like, everybody else seems to be getting this. I'm not really getting this. So he's saying, I want you to have knowledge, but I also want you to have understanding. And then uh, with that understanding, I also want you to have wisdom. Wisdom is kind of like street smarts. Like how does the world work the best? In the Bible, there's wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature tells us this is God's best way of living. And this is how you show up in the world correctly according to God's way of living. And the Bible talks about super practical things like how to handle money and how to handle sex and how to handle friendships and how to handle business and how to handle your time and how, to, how you should talk. It's knowledge applied. It's ethics for the world. The Bible is meant to affect the way you live. This book is meant to guide the way you live. It's not just something that you scramble to find Sunday morning so you can make sure you have it with you. It's meant to guide the way that you live. It's education for action. 
The Christian is meant to be transformed by God to live an informed life that towards actionable love for the fame of Jesus and the good of the world. I am transformed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. I am informed by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. I take steps of action of love, reflecting God's love for me towards others by the power of the Holy Spirit for the fame of Jesus and the good of the world. That is the pathway of a Christian. Look at verse 10. He says this, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. How do I show up in the world? How do I engage the world that God loves in a meaningful way? Paul says it looks like fruitful work. In essence, as a Christian, we do good work. As Christians live and operate in society, we do good things. We do things that God would identify as good. And we do whatever God has given to us, whatever our hand finds to do, we do it in the best way that we can. Not so that we earn God's acceptance, not because we're trying to earn God's favor or acceptance or approval, but because we already have it. Going back to what I was saying before, if I am so secure in my relationship with God because of what Jesus has done, not because I have to do something to get it, but when I'm that secure, I can do the best work. I can do good things because I'm, I'm secure in my relationship. I know that I'm loved because I know that I'm loved in such a robust and radical way. I can love you in the most robust and radical way. Because I know that God has already done every good thing on my behalf, I can do everything that I do in the best way possible. That's what Paul is saying here. And listen, if, if I take seeds and I drop them in the dirt, there is no guarantee that they become a tree. But if I never throw any seeds in the dirt, I'm guaranteed to never see fruit. You see? The... the We can't give someone faith, we can't give someone grace, but we can show them our faith and we can show them the grace of God by our good work and our love towards them. The apostle Paul understands this. He's like, look, my job, God's giving me something very specific to do and that's to throw these good seeds out there. And there's other guys like Apollos, they'll come by and they'll water. But if there's any increase, if there's any fruit that comes out of my life, that's God. God is the one who brings the increase. God is the one who brings the, the, the fruit. So the question that we just have to ask ourselves, church, is are we doing good work? Are we doing things with our lives where God would look at that and be like, that's good. That's a good thing that you're doing there. You have to look back and do kind of like an inventory of your week. Like, did I spend my time doing things where God would look at that and say, that's good. You've done a good thing with your time. You've done a good thing with your money. You've done a good thing with the gifts that I've given you. I prayed for someone, I encouraged someone, I was honest about how I spent my time at work, I helped someone. And you have no idea what fruit will come from that, and that's not your responsibility, that's the Spirit's job to do that, to bring forth. This is a massive, massive thing for us as pastors and church leaders here. 
Because we constantly have to be asking ourselves, like, are what are we doing? Are we sowing seeds of good work that God will grow fruit from? That's, that's the accountability that's on us and over our lives. Like, having more people show up and attend your church, that's great, but that is not the point. The, the point is, God, would you change hearts and transform lives for the fame of Jesus? We wrestle with this question all the time around here. If for whatever reason, this place was just annihilated and vaporized and we were off the planet and never on, would anybody in our community care? Would anybody notice? Would anybody say, I am heartbroken that they are no longer in our community because of the good things that they were doing, of the way they cared for me, of the way they were generous, of the way that they took care of us. I, I'm heartbroken that they're gone. Or would they would say, I really didn't even know what that place was. I thought they just had a big plus sign out front of the road. I don't even know what the place was. C.S. Lewis says, the outer world is quite right to judge Christianity by its results. This is from Mere Christianity. Christ told us to judge by results. A tree is known by his fruit. So C.S. Lewis says, it's right that you are held accountable by the world when they look at your actions. They should do that. Jesus says something very similar in Luke chapter six. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When I was reading this, I was like, I understand why Paul is so excited about this church because I'm really excited about our church. We have a long history of generosity, and I would say specifically in the past two years, which have been some of the most difficult in our church's history, we've been able to see incredible generosity come out of here and, and help refugees and orphans and people experiencing homelessness and being able to partner with the law enforcement officers that are serving our communities, students and teachers of Title I schools. We've seen young, uh, diverse leaders come to know Jesus and now step into increased roles of training and serving. We see parents and grandparents baptizing their, their children. We see one generation sharing the glory and the good works of God to another. And that is real, real fruit. And again, any fruit growing anywhere is all because of God and his power and his kindness towards us so that the fame and glory is all his. I'm just saying that he works through the faithful seed planting of his people. And I'm really excited that I get to be a part of a people like that. And we just, you know this just in, in life, like the way that you grow more seeds is the way that you root down in things that are more healthy. Psalm 1 talks about this. Uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose life does not wither whatever they do prospers. The psalmist is just saying, if you want to have fruit coming out of your life, it needs to be planted in the right things, namely the word of God. Verse 11, let's move quickly here, almost done. 
um, chapter 1, verse 11 says this, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have a great endurance and patience. Endurance there in the Greek is this idea of being able to bear up underneath. So it's like a heavy load's been put on you and you can stand up underneath it. Patience has the idea of uh, under extreme temperature or under heat for a sustained amount of time. So what Paul is saying is I'm praying that you have the ability to bear up under the weight and take heat for a long time. And Paul says, you can't just do that on your own. There's a supernatural power that you need to be able to have that patient endurance. And I'm praying that God supplies that power to you outside of yourself so that you will have uh, that ability to endure and be patient in times of trouble. This is one of the earliest hallmarks of the early church. This is one of the things that they were known for. This was a group of people who were under massive persecution. And I'm not just saying that like they got blocked on social media or their religious liberty was threatened. No, they were cut in half. They were lit on fire. They were eaten alive by wild animals. I mean, if you look back at church history and you see what Nero did to the Christians, it's, it's sadistic. It's awful. It's horrible. And what the church was known for is these Christians who would pray for those who were killing them and they would offer forgiveness for those who were persecuting them. And people started to see these Christians as they're being tortured and murdered and persecuted and they're praying and they're offering forgiveness and they're like, wait a minute, what is up with these people? There's something different about that. A lot of people die, a lot of people get murdered, but these Christians, they pray for us. What's going on with them? And the Roman world began to take great interest in the person of Jesus because they watched the Christians who suffered well. If you look back at the Roman centurion who's there at the cross of Jesus, he'd seen a lot of people crucified. He'd seen a lot of people die. A lot of people murdered. And as he watched everybody else, they were cursing God and cursing everybody around them. And here's this Jesus. He's praying for them. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering uh, the promise of paradise to a thief who's next to him. The centurion sees all that and he's like, this is different. This is the son of God. So how do you endure well you are empowered and strengthened by God. You, you have friends, I'm sure you have relationships, I'm, I'm sure, where people dismiss your faith, where people are diminutive towards you because you are a Christian. But when they can watch you handle hardship and adversity and suffering well, and when they watch you pray for and bless your enemies rather than slander or attack them online, when they watch you forgive, when they watch you work with integrity and excellence and in humility, be extremely generous, I promise you, when things go bad in their life, and things always go bad, the very people who mock you when they see you live like this will be the first person to come to your door and ask you, will you pray for me? I need help. Can you tell me about the hope that you have? Can you tell me about the source of strength that God has given you? And God will allow you to be a source of strength for them. And then lastly, he says, you do all of this with thanksgiving. 
I'm going to have the band come up because we're going to close right now. But look at the last uh, two verses here in this little section. It says this, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's prayer, he's saying, listen, this is how I want... I'm praying that God does this, so this is how you can show up in the world. I'm praying that you would bear fruit in your good work. I'm praying that you would increase in knowledge. I'm praying that you would have strength to patiently endure. And I'm praying that you are a people who give thanks. Because if gratitude is not on the seat of your heart, entitlement will take its place. And when you don't get what you think you are entitled to, resentment and bitterness begin to rise up and take root. James talks about this. He's like, you know why you're trying to kill each other? It's because there's stuff you want and you don't have it and you covet it and you get angry and you fight and you quarrel and you try to kill each other. So how do you fight against that with gratitude? Well, how do I have gratitude? Well, Paul points us to what should just stir up in us an overwhelming fountain of thanksgiving, no matter what the circumstances. He says, we give thanks that we have a father who sent us his only son. And his son did everything so that we can share in his inheritance. We were not qualified. We were not eligible at all for any of that. We had no claim on that life. We had no claim, no right to heaven because the only claim, the only thing that was due us was death and separation from God forever because of our sin, because of our rebellion against the holy God. We didn't have what it took to be an heir of God. So God made it possible and God made it available and God made it secure through his son, Jesus. We're gonna see later on in this chapter that everything that the father has goes to his son, Jesus. And Jesus could have been selfish with that. He said that that's all do me and it's right. It was all his, it was all his. But he says, father, everything that you've given to me, I'm going to share with my enemy. And I I'm going to search out co-heirs. He says, I'm not only willing to share the inheritance of heaven with them, I will actively adopt people who are actively my enemies to share the inheritance of heaven with them. And I will take on myself, Jesus says, everything that makes them ineligible and whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get my brother and my sister, Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. Well, well, they're lost in darkness. Jesus says, I will descend into the darkness. Well, they are buried in sin and shame. And Jesus says, well, then I will be buried in their place. Well, they're dead. They are dead in their trespasses. They are dead in their sin and in their rebellion. And Jesus says, I will take on death for them. They're broken. They're sick. I'll take it all on me so that they can be healed. Jesus says, I will lay down every part of my life so that they can have life in me and with me forever in heaven. 
So how do we have a heart of gratitude? And in, in, even in the worst times, Tom Trader is a founding pastor. He, he, would just, he would always say, for the Christian, the suffering that we have in this life is the closest to hell that we'll ever get because our future inheritance is secure in a place with a Savior who wipes away every tear and heals every wound and forgives every sin, who has done every single thing necessary for us to be at home with him. And it's why we say, hallelujah, what a savior. It's also why every week we celebrate communion. So on your, ta- on your chairs around you, there's uh, an element, there's, a, there's the cup and the bread. It's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we take those elements, the reason that they're available to us is because of what we just read there in Colossians chapter one. I'm gonna read it again. It's just as our text as we get ready to, to take these elements. Giving joyful thanks to the Father, which is what we do when we take the bread and when we take the cup. If, if your confession is you are a follower of Jesus, then those elements are for you because this is true over you. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance? You didn't qualify yourself. That's the confession we make. I could never do anything to qualify myself for this. Jesus had to do everything for that to be possible, to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. This is why we sing. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, take the bread, take the cup, eat, drink, and celebration and remembrance of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And then we stand and we sing together.